Hi, guys. Good morning. So, I want to start by telling you that I have a friend who I have known for almost six years now, and she's kind of like a spiritual mentor or a guide for me. Over the years, whenever we get together, even if it's months apart, we're always surprised at how our lives are so much in the same place. We've been in the same kind of path, spiritually, professionally, personally, for a couple years now, and we can kind of help each other out from a couple steps ahead. It's great. But I have to confess that it used to make me kind of uncomfortable to meet with this friend because she would often talk about God in a way that I couldn't relate to or understand. She would say things like, I feel the Spirit leading me to tell you about this book. Or she would say, God is telling me that I should act on this decision. And she never said anything illegal or unethical. It wasn't anything like, I feel the Spirit telling me to sleep with a married man, or God's telling me to jump off a bridge. It was never crazy like that. Um, She had a really great prayer life, and she was a woman of strong character. So very often the things that she heard God's voice in were things that aligned with truth and justice and mercy in our world. But still, it just, this kind of language made me uncomfortable. It was just a little too uh, churchy, maybe. A little too much like the way the crazy Christian kids in my public high school used to talk right before they said something judgy and hurtful. So I have to confess that I still feel a little uncomfortable today when people talk so confidently and boldly, telling me things like, God is telling me to move across the country or to quit my job. I just, I have this skepticism that I have to keep in check whenever people talk so clearly about hearing the voice of God. So I want to ask, am I the only one? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, good. So, so maybe you react in a similar way when your friends come talking to you like this, or maybe, um, maybe you've never had a friend say that to you. So, like, what would be more shocking to have your friend come to you saying, I'm going to change my life for God, or would it be more shocking to see a you know, a plane land in the East River. I don't know. We're all New Yorkers. We have that skepticism, right? It's hard to keep that thing in check sometimes. The Bible makes several references to the sound of God's voice, and maybe you've heard some more reasonable versions, okay? Maybe you've heard it described as the gentle cooing of a dove, whatever that means exactly. Maybe you've heard it described as a still, small voice, or as like a gut instinct, right? There's this scene in the movie and the book, Eat, Pray, Love, where the author finds herself um, on the bathroom floor in the middle of the night. She's sobbing uncontrollably, right? She's having a crisis of life and faith, realizing that she doesn't want the marriage, the house, the path to motherhood that her life is on. And so though she's never really prayed before, she gets down on her knees, you know, at the toilet, and she's praying to God, And it's Julie Roberts, by the way. She's the actress in the movie. And you just see her say out loud, go back to bed, Liz. And then she gets up, and she goes back to bed. And I mean, how many times have I laid in bed in a stress-filled night, praying to God to just flood me with peace like that, right? Helping me just go back to bed so I can figure it all out in the morning. But easier said than done. Yet somehow, this is the way that we often think that God is supposed to talk to us that he only speaks um, as some voice of certainty and like clear-cut direction, or that he only speaks to the extremely pious, the religious types, who can go on silent meditation trips up into the Hudson River Valley? I don't know. Maybe you think that you're not good enough. Maybe you think you're not clean enough. You have too much sin. You're not, you know, you don't know scripture well enough. You're not close enough to God to hear his voice. Maybe you think that he only speaks to pastors. 
I think one of the main reasons why I felt so uncomfortable whenever my friend would talk about how God was working in her, her life was because I thought a lot of these things at the time. I thought that maybe she was just a whole lot holier than me or that maybe she was a little bit crazy. I don't know. She didn't use language that I would ever feel comfortable using, but hearing her speak of God so differently than me, that did start to make me question, you know, how does he speak in my life? How do I hear God's voice? And this is the reason why we are in this series, Vox Dei, fancy Latin way of saying voice of God, right? As people of faith, we are often trained to believe that God speaks to us in these holy private places of seclusion. But in truth, that is just one facet of God's guidance in human life. He's trying to reach us in a myriad of channels through our friends, our families, our faith communities, our own intellect, our love of nature, creation, you know, the people on the subway cars. And especially in studying the life of Christ. So God is using every avenue available to human beings to get his message across. And this week, we're going to dive deeper into what it looks like to hear the voice of God and to help each other develop humility through relationships, through friendships. This week, we're going to start to talk about discipleship. And we're going to start by looking at the life of Jesus, okay? And the messy, mixed-up people that he chooses to become his friends. And we're going to look at the intense personal friendships, the details of those friendships as as they develop and grow in ministry together. All right, so Jonathan just read for us the passage in Mark, right, where Jesus calls his first disciples. Well, we know that these are some really important verses because they appear not only in the Gospel of Mark, but also in Matthew and Luke, okay? So we know that Jesus at this time has been preaching for a little while now, and this is kind of a turning point in the story. John the Baptist has just been arrested. So tensions are escalating, and Jesus is drawing a crowd, right? So here he is in Galilee preaching to tons of people, and he's cutting straight to the point. He's telling them, time is up, God's kingdom is here, change your life and believe in the message. And then he starts to call specific men into discipleship with him because his ministry has grown enough at this time that he knows he needs some help. Okay, so I want to take a moment and just pause for a second and and clarify. I know that some of us have a little trouble with this word disciple or discipleship. You know, maybe you have some baggage from past church experiences or just from your own perceptions of that word. Maybe you're a little more comfortable with the word Christian. Well, I want to point out that the word Christian only appears in the Bible three times, and usually it's in a derogatory way. But the word disciple, it's in the New Testament over 250 times, often interchanged with the word apostle. The Greek term for the word disciple in the New Testament, I'm going to try to say this right, it's mathetes, which means more than just student or learner, or disciple is a follower. So you've heard us say Christ follower around here, right? Well, Christ follower is just another way of saying disciple. Someone who adheres completely to the teachings of another, making them his or her rule of life and conduct. So discipleship under Jesus, it began with a call, and then it required that a person exercise their will in response. So unlike other rabbis, Jesus actually handpicks his disciples. So just like a, you know, a master artist picks a student apprentice, this is a really big step because that student knows everything about how they teach, about their faith is going to be informed by what they learn from this rabbi. Okay? But in that moment of saying yes to Jesus, it also meant for these men saying yes to transformation, to learning a whole new way of life, a new set of values, a new set of systems, a new vocation. Jesus must have been really compelling, too, because this whole calling and saying yes, it happens in just a few sentences. It starts with two sets of brothers, right? 
James and John, Peter and Andrew, who've been working as partners on fishing boats, and they're pretty good at it. They've got hired help. Jesus sees them casting nets into the sea, and he says to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of people. And it says that they left their nets immediately and they followed him. Well, the Gospel of Luke goes into a little bit more detail with this. In Luke, they have Jesus um, actually going up to Peter and telling him, cast your nets again. And the fish hadn't been biting all day. It wasn't a good day for fishing. But when Peter drops his nets this time, it's, it fills with fish. The amount of fish is just incredible. And Peter drops to his knees, declaring Jesus Lord of all. So these must be some pretty remarkable guys, right? Because they drop their lifelong occupation, they leave their families, their father Zebedee, right? And they just get up and follow Jesus into the unknown. Well, let's take a moment to consider these guys or any of the 12 for that matter, who were they exactly? Why did Jesus pick these men specifically? You know, we've been programmed over the years to think of these guys with halos over their head, right? A simple Google search turned up all of these photos. There was a whole lot of expensive gold ink used for these guys, right? So, and these are some pictures that have dated back for centuries. One of the most famous, probably Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. That one seems a little more, a little more accurate to me. Um, But yeah, you know, we tend to think of these guys as pastors or church leaders, right? The halo-wearing type, the saints, the holy saints of our church. But in actuality, when these men were called into discipleship, they looked a lot more like criminals than pastors. I think few of them could have even been described as Christians today, let alone leaders of the church. They were blue-collar guys, not the wise academics you would have thought he'd choose. They were full of Jewish narrow-mindedness. They were products of their social and cultural context. They had a lot to shed before they could be the, um, the people who would spread the gospel love. And tomorrow I'm going to go into more details on all 12 of the disciples on our blog, so make sure you check that out. But today I want to point out a few of these men, just so we can start to learn how ordinary and how remarkable the friendship was between Jesus Christ and his friends. So let's start with the two brothers, James and John. So Jesus goes on to nickname them Sons of Thunder, and I figure that this is probably because of the temperament of these two hotheads, okay? There is one story in Luke where they actually want to incinerate a whole village, women and children included, because they won't let Jesus and his men spend the night in town. So the message version of this story in Luke chapter 9 has them asking Jesus, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? And Jesus then replies, of course not. But I figure he also probably says, you idiots. These guys seem more like Jesus' bouncers than like the wise preachers of gospel love that we think of them as, right? And yet Jesus loved these two brothers. He loved them so much that they were not only a part of the twelve, But James and John, along with Peter, were part of his inner three. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So let's move on to Simon, okay? There were two disciples named Simon when they were called. Uh, Fortunately, Jesus changes one of their names to Peter, probably because he was sick of the confusion. I don't know. But we we don't know that much about the second guy named Simon, except that he's a Canaanite, which refers to a political affiliation, not to a geographical location. The gospel writer of Luke calls him Simon the Zealot, and it wasn't just because he had a you know, really fervent prayer life. He was more like the kid from the wrong part of town. Okay? Simon was a part of this ancient Jewish sect that was aimed at world domination, so he was kind of like a Jewish jihadist, someone who's willing to go to war in order to spread his beliefs. 
The zealots, they were known for killing the Roman oppressors, and they, they would kill Jews who sold out to the Romans, too. They were aggressive, violent, they did anything but love their enemies, and yet Jesus called this guy into his inner twelve. Okay, so then there's Matthew, right, also known as Levi. He is the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, very holy guy, right? He actually may, may have been one of the worst ones of all. Um, he was, no doubt, hated by every Jew. If Matthew and Simon had met on the street, I'm pretty sure that Simon would have killed Matthew because Matthew was a definition of a sellout. He was a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector for the Roman government, okay? We first meet Matthew in his tax booth on the main highway. Tax collectors were notoriously corrupt because they extorted far above and beyond what was owed at the time in order to ensure their own personal profit. You heard Jonathan a couple of weeks ago, he talked about how taxes at this time under the Roman government could be 80 to 90% of a person's income. Well, you can be sure that some of that money ended up in Matthew's pocket. He was a really greedy guy. Imagine if you found out that your childhood friend was making a living off of funneling money to ISIS. That's kind of what that would be like. Would you invite that person to start a church? Because apparently that's what Jesus did. He knew full well that a man like Matthew would be a stumbling block in his ministry, that people would have a really hard time respecting him, and yet still, he called him into his inner twelve. And now, if you've ever heard of the disciple Judas Iscariot, you probably know him as the traitor. He's the guy who completely betrays Jesus. He sells him out for 30 coins and turns him over to be crucified, all right? He's known as the number one traitor, probably, in history. We read that he does feel remorse about this, but remorse is not the same thing as repentance. If you look closer at Jesus' relationship with Judas Iscariot throughout the Gospels, it's interesting because you never actually see him call him Lord. He only calls him Rabbi, which suggests that maybe Judas never really believed that Christ was the Son of God. So why did he spend so much time wandering around with him in his ministry? Well, Maybe it's because Judas, like so many other Jews at the time, thought that the Savior was going to be this great political power, and so he wanted to be in when Jesus took up his court in Rome. He was a greedy guy, too, to say the least. So we can count Judas Iscariot for sure as the failed student in the bunch, and yet he played a necessary role in fulfilling Old Testament scripture that one of Christ's friends would betray him in the end. He knew exactly what he was doing when he called Jesus into sorry, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he called Judas Iscariot into discipleship. But he also made it very clear that Judas had the choice and would be held accountable for his actions within that friendship. Okay, so now I've been saving the best for last, the one that we can consider as Jesus's BFF. His name is Simon Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' three best friends, along with James and John. The three of them were the only ones present for the transfiguration of our Lord. And Peter and John were given the special task of preparing the Last Supper. Okay? They were like his go-to guys, the ones that he could trust with all his really hard stuff. Remember, Peter is the one who fills his boat full of fish and then drops to his knees declaring, you know, Jesus is Lord because he's an enthusiastic dude. He's strong-willed, he's impulsive, and at times he can be kind of brash. We see Jesus rebuke and teach the disciples throughout the Gospels, but he seems to take extra time and attention on Peter. Remember, he's changed his name from Simon to Peter. Peter means rock, and Jesus specifically asks him to be the firm and faithful rock that he can build his church upon. 
Yet still, on the night before Jesus' death, a servant girl comes up to Peter and asks if he knew Jesus. And he gets really nervous, and he cusses, and he says, I don't know that guy. I mean, is that the kind of halo-wearing behavior that you expect from Jesus' number one friend? All right, so let's recap. To build his kingdom, Jesus handpicks what could be compared to the leader of the Black Panther Party, the Grand Wizard of the KKK, a couple of guys who completely betray him, and a bunch of other messed-up, bumbling characters. And I highly doubt that after they said yes to his call, that suddenly they were washed clean of their potty mouths, and that they dropped all their racist thoughts and their worldly ambitions and just fully embraced servant leadership. No, if there is anything that these Gospels teach us through the training of these men, it's that discipleship is a process. There's this great mix of good and evil, of grace and human nature in these men. Discipleship, it's a messy offensive, difficult, slow process that requires a ridiculous amount of hard work and grace for ourselves and for each other. Yet when Christ extends that invitation to these men to join him in discipleship, he's doing it not based on their resumes or their background checks, but on their hearts, on their willingness to grow. So there's this book that I've been reading that I'm really enjoying. It's called The Training of the Twelve. And in it, the author Alexander Balmain Bruce says this. The eye of Jesus was single as well as omniscient. He looked on the heart and had respect solely to spiritual fitness. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. He goes on to say, He had no faith in any discipleship based on mistaken beliefs or misunderstandings of his teachings or selfish motivations. And he had no apprehension based on the history or criminal records of these men either. He was indifferent to their lives, the lives they led before he called them. Confident in the power of truth, he chose the base things of the world in preference to things held in esteem, assured that they would conquer in the last, aware that both he and his disciples would be despised and rejected of men for a season. He went calmly on his way, choosing for his companions and agents who he would undisturbed by the gainsaying of his generation, like one who knew that his work concerned all nations and all time. So if God's scandalous friendship with these 12 guys, if it means anything, it's that we should expect the same kind of mess of righteousness as we grow together through spiritual formation, through small groups, through community within our church, and that we should lay aside our judgments, our skepticism about pasts, about present contexts, And offer that same grace and patience with each other as we grow. You know, Jesus doesn't pick his friends based on common language or shared political beliefs, cultures, age, marital status, football teams. He doesn't choose his friends based on any of the criteria of this world. And he doesn't pick his leaders because they're highly educated and they went to seminary. And he doesn't pick them just because they're there and they're good-looking either. He chooses them because of their hearts their shared values, and most importantly, their willingness to grow. This is how he recognizes disciples. He chooses his friends not based on the criteria of this world because he knows what's coming, that they're going to be despised for a season, but rather he chooses like a leader who knew that his work concerned all nations, all people, and all time. And just as God loved these fools and their mess and their mistakes, he loves us in our mess. And we are invited to meet each other in friendship in that exact same way. 
Because despite their pasts, remember, these men do go on to learn the heart of God, to embrace that gospel love, and they go on to plant the church, to become not just disciples, but apostles, and to turn disciples, you know, hundreds and thousands, millions across the years, all the way down onto us, as the church continues to grow and carry forth the good news of God's kingdom. And I love this stuff, honestly. I like learning about this. I like reading the details of how to do life together. I like watching how to teach and learn and do ministry from the master himself. You know, seeing grace in action with Jesus doing it himself. I love watching how the disciples are so narrow-minded and they make mistakes and they ask dumb questions and they kind of get on Jesus' nerves, it seems like. I love it because... I'm the exact same way. I love seeing how every time they're there for a miracle or a healing, the next time around they still get anxious and worried and they don't know what God's doing because I'm the exact same way. And I love watching how patient Christ is with them as he teaches them and loves them and stays faithful to them because it reminds me that he loves me and he's faithful to me and that he's just as patient with me as I grow. You see, we were created to experience God in three ways. We were created to experience him in relationship with ourselves, in relationship with God, and then in relationship with creation, which means in relationship with other people. And trying to grow spiritually without any one of those relationships is sort of like trying to learn a bicycle, how to ride a bicycle for the first time while missing a training wheel, okay? It just doesn't work. Too often, the voice that we try to give to God, it's too laden with our own sense of insecurity, our shame, our fears, our wounds, and especially our own egos. God's voice, it does judge and it does condemn, but it judges and condemns not by using force or intimidation, but in the same way that being on the receiving end of an act of generosity makes you question your own selfishness. Or in the way that sharing your story with another human being helps free you from shame in the way that light pushes out darkness through friendship. God's voice judges us not by overpowering and overwhelming us, but by using people, people who can shine light and love into all those places where we find ourselves huddled alone in fear, bitterness, and hostility and sin. You know, as I've grown in my faith, diving deeper into scripture and prayer, I'm reminded over and over again that God so often uses people to convict and challenge me. As I listen to other people's experiences with him, I also begin to process my own journey. And now I'm at a point where I can understand what it means to have that feeling of peace wash over you. You know, I'm, I can kind of understand what it means to have that gut instinct, and I can check my skepticism by asking better questions of myself and of others. But so often I've only processed and understood those feelings because of conversations with friends that I can trust. I mean, how many times have you rolled around in your own head with thoughts that are swirling, right? Only to say them out loud to someone that you can trust and to hear how very right or how very wrong they actually are. One of the most cathartic things that we can do as human beings is to share our stories and our lives with someone else. Grace teaches us to practice friendship in a way that allows us to come as we are with all of our baggage, whatever context we're in right now. And love teaches us that we are far too valuable to God to remain that way forever. Friendship, it sympathizes with you as it challenges you. It accepts one where they are while providing a framework of accountability. So when we say 
Friendship is one of the reasons why we do small groups, it's why we do events, it's why we build community in this church. We mean it in that context. Relationships that enhance life and allow people space for growth. Just as Jesus met the disciples in their context, in their fishing boats, in their tax booths, so we are called to meet each other in our context as well and to move forward, loving each other and sharing those values that Jesus modeled for us through his disciples. So who would be equivalent to a tax collector or a political extremist, an enemy in your life? Maybe it's that really outspoken friend on Facebook whose political rants you just can't stand anymore. Or maybe it's that guy that you always judge because his shirt costs more than you make in a week. Maybe it's the elderly neighbor who's always saying hi to you in the morning, but you can't seem to muster up more than a hi. If we became more willing to meet people in their context the way Christ did, to build friendship with unlikely companions, how would that challenge us? How would it help us grow as individuals and as a community? What if in response to God's gift of grace and faithfulness in your life, you offered that same faithfulness and grace to someone else? It's easier said than done, right? There's some tension in this. Saying yes to discipleship means saying yes to growth, even when it's uncomfortable, inconvenient, and sometimes hurts. You know, if you assessed Jesus' ministry right after he died, you might say that it's a failure. You know, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times, and almost all the others abandoned him as he hung on the cross, and yet he was faithful to them. He loved them even after his resurrection. Being faithful sometimes means loving people even when it's hard. And discipleship in this community means meeting each other in our context, even when it's hard. And it means holding each other accountable to our values, to community, to humility, to uh, generosity, and to diversity. So to clarify, when we say that we're going to make disciples, it doesn't mean we're going to make everyone the same, that we all want everyone to be just like us. But rather, discipleship means becoming the best version of who you were created to be in all your diverse, creative, incredible glory. And just as the disciples had the choice, they had to exercise their will in response to that call, right? So we have the choice, too. We can choose to pursue the voice of God in our world, Or we can let the voices of this city keep mixing us up, right? There's a lot of voices in New York City competing for our attention, asking to influence us, right? And it takes a lot of intentional choice for us to grow closer to God. But saying yes to discipleship means that you're ready to ask the hard questions, that you're going to ask, what do I believe and why do I believe it? It means examining your emotions so that they don't get in the way of your maturity, It means committing to diving into scripture and prayer so that you might start to find the answers to some of those questions. And it means allowing good people who will move you toward truth and light to influence you, to surround you, and support you on that journey. You can choose to say yes to this, or you can choose to keep doing life the way you've always done it. A few months ago, I had a conversation with someone who's been working really hard on developing a personal relationship with Christ. Over the past couple of years, I've seen her grow in all areas of spiritual discipline. It's really great. But none of us are perfect, right? So a couple months ago, she made a mistake with a relationship. She found herself overwhelmed and struggling to hear God's voice in it all. And a big part of the reason why she got off track in her, in her, you know, her seeking of her faith was because she got really busy, just like we all do. Sometimes we get really busy and overwhelmed by life in the city, and you kind of 
push aside your spiritual needs or your relationship with God. You kind of sweep that under the rug or say, you know, I'll come back to that later when life's a little calmer. Well, so then in the midst of all that, she did what we've all done. She talked about her problems, her struggles with some friends at work, people who um, don't share the same values as her and don't know where she was where she was trying to grow in her faith life. And that advice confused her even more. You know, it, it led her further down the path of uncertainty. So how might her life be different? How might that relationship have been different if she had instead sought the advice of a friend, a mentor, a guide who knew how she was trying to grow, right? Someone who shared her values. How might it be different if she had word, friends who spoke words of truth and light and growth into her? I mean, do you have friends like that? Or do your friends continue to influence you and spin you in the worries and ambitions of this world alone? We can continue to live our lives in a holding pattern, or we can commit to doing the hard work to grow through discipleship. And if you're ready for that, if you're ready to be intentional like that, then maybe it's time for you to ask, who in my life can I ask to help hold me accountable? Who can I ask? Who can I go a step further with in vulnerability today? You know, who can I talk to about how I'm hearing God's voice or how I'm feeling connected to him? Who can I ask to help me process that this week and to walk with me as I keep growing and learning to find God in my life? Maybe it's time that you take a couple steps closer towards discipleship. And if you're a leader in this community or if you're aspiring to lead, then this is important. I want to ask you, who have you asked to come along with you? Who have you brought into discipleship as you continue to grow? Who have you made a commitment to, to sacrifice for in friendship, to be there for them, even when it's inconvenient and hard? Maybe this week you can turn to a friend that you're already growing with, and you can say to them, I see in you a heart that's willing to grow, and I want to walk with you through that. How are you being called to discipleship with Jesus? How are your friends How are your friendships bringing you closer to the heart of God? And what are you doing to help others come closer? In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. In other words, he called the disciples to live life with him, but he was also intentional about teaching and equipping them to carry forth his mission into the world after he's gone. This is the great task that we've all been given. This kind of intentional spiritual growth, it's what we're going to keep talking about here at Forefront. This is how we're going to keep using these friendships to create disciples and together move each other, our neighborhoods, and our city closer and closer to reconciliation and renewal with our God. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I pray that as a community of Christ followers, people who are growing towards discipleship, that you would challenge us and convict us this week to use our friendships, our relationships within this community and in this city to come closer to you. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to vulnerability and to trust, that we would each take one individual step a little closer to what it means to find you in this complicated, mixed-up, messy world. I pray that we would be there for each other through all of it. Amen.